it was our delight to dash those proud faces to the ground, to smite them with the sword and savage them with the axe, as if blood and agony could follow from every blow. Our transports of joy, so long deferred, were unrestrained, all sort of form of vengeance in beholding those bodies mutilated, limbs hacked in pieces, and finally that baleful, fearsome visage cast into fire to be melted down so that from such menacing terror something for man's use and enjoyment should light out. Thank you all so much for joining us. My name is Jennifer Cohane. I'm one of the co-founders of CARP and an assistant professor at the University of Baltimore. I just wanted to introduce us quickly to our, our topic and to tell you a little bit about CARP for those of you who may be unfamiliar. So CARP is a loose collection of international and interdisciplinary scholars who study character and character assassination throughout politics, science, entertainment, all sorts of realms of society. So we host conferences dedicated to the subject. We publish scholarship on character assassination and teach courses, workshops, and seminars. Um, we recently, in January of this year, published the Rutledge Handbook of Character Assassination and Reputation Management. It's a hefty volume. My hard copy is unfortunately uh, locked in an office I'm not allowed to go to. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is that we're really excited to have two more CARP co-founders, Martin Ix and Eric Sharive, with us today to talk about the historical approach to statues and toppling statues, defacing statues, vandalizing statues throughout history. They literally wrote the book on character assassination and our work on the topic sort of stems from their original uh, work uh, and publication of this edited collection, Character Assassination Throughout the Ages. So I'm going to turn it over to them and stop sharing my screen with you all. But again, thanks for joining us and give your attention to our speakers. Thanks very much, Jenny. So Eric, are you ready? Yeah, let, let me see if the uh, share screen works, because I want to share with you an image that undoubtedly is familiar to everyone here, because this is one of the most famous episodes from the Iraq war, the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein in Further Square, Baghdad in 2003, where um, Iraqi citizens helped by the US Army toppled one of the uh, prominent statues of the Iraqi dictator. Interestingly, one of the um, people who helped to topple this statue later came out and told the BBC that he actually regretted doing so because he thought the situation in Iraq had deteriorated since then. So here you see uh, Kadem Sharif, as the man is called, uh, taking a sledgehammer to the statue. But later he says, when I go past that, statue or where it used to stand, I feel pain and shame and I ask myself, why did I topple this statue? I'd like to put it back up to rebuild it. I put it back up, but I'm afraid I would be killed. So it interestingly goes to show how people's perspective can change over time, but it's particularly that why question that we'll be focusing on today. Why did people uh, and do people topple or deface statues of politicians and other public figures? What's the history behind that? And how has that changed over time? 
let me add just a few seconds and then just we start from there. Uh, why us? Uh, Marta and I, we think that uh, we can share our humble opinion on this subject because we have written in this field, as Jenny said. Martin is historian, is a historian, also writes uh, about the lives of Roman emperors and not only about them. I do write in the fields of international relations and publish, and also I write in the fields of cross-cultural psychology uh, and publish a lot in this, in this field. So we humbly believe that we can provide our expertise in this field of defacing toppling statues and other works of art. Uh, we are not giving political assessments today. We're not giving legal assessments because there is a due process. We are giving a historical perspective, which inevitably includes studies in rhetoric, studies in political communication, studies in history, studies in psychology. And this is again question why? What motivates people to do that? Uh, what ideas they have when they attack statues and other objects of art? And also consequences uh, and certainly assessments. But my, my first question probably will be right away. Martin, we talked about events of today, but when did this all start? Yeah, um, well, I mean, we can go practically as far back as you'd like, I suppose. One, one of the earliest examples that I'm aware of, at least, is this one. This is a, a pharaoh from ancient Egypt, Pharaoh Hatshepsut. Uh, interestingly, she was a female pharaoh. She was originally installed as regent of her uh, nephew, who was a minor, but she actually decided that she would make a good ruler herself. So she occupied the throne and then reigned as pharaoh over Egypt for over 20 years. Now, th this was in the 15th century BCE, so that, that's three and a half thousand years ago. Um, after Hatshepsut died and she was finally succeeded by her nephew, uh, and in fact, only 20 years after that, so not immediately, uh, there seems to have been some sort of campaign going on in Egypt and many of her statues were destroyed. Uh, and one example of that is can be seen here on the walls of the uh, famous Karnak temple, where the image of Pharaoh Hatshepsut has been removed. But there's also a very conspicuous gap, as you can see. They could have painted something else over it. They didn't do that. They very conspicuously left that gap there. The question, of course, is why did this, this happen? And we're not entirely sure. Um, you could speculate that perhaps the nephew was frustrated that he had to wait for his time so long because his aunt occupied the throne for 20 years. But then why did he wait 20 years until after she was dead to finally attack her memory? Uh, it may have had something to do with the fact that she was a woman and that people were very uncomfortable with the, the legacy of a woman who ruled and in fact ruled quite successfully as far as we're aware and, and wanted to send out a very strong signal that, that this wouldn't do, that this wasn't uh, good. About a hundred years after that, this is probably the sarcophagus of the pharaoh Akhenaten, famous for, well, famous for being the father of King Tut, Tutankhamun, but also for introducing um, a monotheistic sun cult into ancient Egypt. Uh, which, as you can imagine, was very controversial. So he more or less disbanded the old Egyptian pantheon, or at the very least neglected them completely at the expense of this solar deity. Uh, so that caused a huge backlash after his death. His name was scratched from the list of kings. His statues were destroyed, and probably his sarcophagus was also defaced to signal 
that this pharaoh was no longer considered a legitimate king and that his name would live on in infamy forever. The Romans had something we call damnatio memoriae, literally the damnation of memory, where uh, sometimes Roman emperors, after their death, posthumously, uh, would be cursed, sometimes by an official decree by the Roman Senate, sometimes the actions were more spontaneous, but it meant that once again their name was chiseled out of inscriptions, their statues were destroyed, or uh, as you can see here, in the case of the emperor, the mission uh, defaced. And a very nice example, I think, is, is this one. This is not an emperor, this is an empress, Aquilia Severa, who used to be a Vestal Virgin before she married the Roman Emperor. Now, the name Vestal Virgin implies that you're not supposed to marry. So she also became quite a controversial figure. And you can see here, this is a bronze statue that someone took a hammer and smashed her face in. So um, to put it briefly, this goes back a long way. This goes back all the way to the ancient world. We see it in ancient Egypt. We see it in the time of the Roman Emperor. So long time ago, and long talk about ago. statues, right? And then talk about the destruction, defacing. But but the people who did this—just a faceless bunch of people there, or specific individuals who can be identified uh, as we say, some say mob—who did this? Is is it one uh, just answer for this, or just different categories for that? Yeah, it's it's uh, the answers can vary actually, and sometimes we don't even know. I already mentioned uh, Pharaoh had Shepsut, the female Pharaoh. They were not even sure whose initiative it was. Uh, often it was a government initiative. So, for instance, in the Roman Republic and later in the Roman Empire, it was often the Senate or a new emperor who decided that the memory of a predecessor would be condemned, or that the memory of a public figure would be condemned, so then it was an official decision and the Senate would have an official decree stating that now, for instance, the birthday of someone would be uh, seen as a day of bad luck uh, and that they were no longer con considered an honorable person. But sometimes these things happened quite spontaneously as well and, and people might hate a certain public figure so much that they would just attack their statues and destroy them uh, or deface them in some way. So, for instance, when the Emperor Nero had murdered his mother or had condemned her to death, his statues were, were smudged with graffiti and they were vandalized by anonymous people who didn't agree with what the Emperor was doing. Sometimes it could also be anonymous protesters, uh, sometimes it could be an angry mob, it could be the soldiers, or it could be an official decision by a government. In this context, Martin, just glad you, you, you mentioned about the variety of different sources of violence. If you could show uh, the uh, slide in which we depict three uh, cases uh, from recent history, referring to the Soviet Union and referring to uh, Ukraine and then Czech Republic. History, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my, my humble opinion, history is something that has been accomplished, settled. The events of yesterday it's not history because yesterday continues with today's. I talk about literally yesterday. So that's why I think there are still historic events because they took place some time ago and there's sort of sense of accomplishment. Correct me if I'm wrong and we'll talk about it later, I guess. But you see, you talk about different uh, type of people who were uh, engaged in violence. Uh, the picture to your left, it's a statue which is in downtown Moscow, has been there. 
And so the statue uh, is, has been dedicated to uh, one of the most iconic leaders of a communist state, Felix Dzerzhinsky, Polish-Russian individual, uh, who has been associated with the Russian security services, known under the of KGB. So it's a, it's a police power, not necessarily police, but mm -hmm. secret police power. Uh, and in 1991, uh, this uh, statue was, was just simply just knocked down. By, by whom? I can say, just I just studied this, and documents are available. Essentially, yes, A, it was a spontaneous reaction of people. Uh, the supporters say, the demonstrators, the opponents in Russia today say, a mob, violent mob of thugs. But those spontaneous uh, expression of opinions. And then the city council, the government of Moscow, not only didn't they mind, they, they helped with equipment to remove the statue. And I, I look at these signs right there. Uh, there's a, almost profanities, but just sort of profanities, being saying that's end of the government, literally speaking, uh, just mm -hmm. end, end to, the, to the government. Very uh, a colorful Russian slang right there. So there was a combination of public will and public uh, incentive, mass demonstration, and then the government. On uh, your right-hand right side, you see uh, the uh, most recent developments. Uh, this year uh, was done relatively quietly in Prague, the capital of, uh, of the Czech Republic. A, a government uh, did this, sponsored. There was no uh, demonstration around there. Maybe some reporters, some photographers. There's no cheering crowd, right? There are a few individuals, as far as I know, uh, Maybe wrong, but a few dozen people came just to look at this. Uh, well, it's a removal of a statue of a Russian field marshal, marshal uh, who uh, was whose name is associated with the liberation of Prague. We can discuss this: was a liberation or reoccupation of a country by the Soviet powers? A very complicated question. But, but anyway, that was a government decision, and in fact, there was a national consensus about this, saying that in, in fact, yes, thousands of Soviet soldiers lost their lives. Uh, fighting for against Nazi Germany uh, in Prague in 1945, and yet still is a symbol that liberates the years of Soviet Soviet dominance. And on the bottom right hand side, uh, Ukraine statues of Lenin been removed almost all over Ukraine. Pure political action just done by people. The governments just silently stood there, just didn't do anything substantial. But the people removed Lenin, not because they were against, uh, I would say some of them were against communist ideology, but essentially as a political act uh, of defiance uh, statements in the face of uh, Russia, essentially. Russia as a country which Ukrainians believe occupied substantial portion of their territory. Right. In the contemporary times, true, it's a government sponsor removals, people and the governments and people themselves without the government. Yeah. So shall I move on to the next slide? Yeah, certainly, certainly. But, but my question is, we talk about statues, but statues represent something. But are there only this, the statues that were attacked, defaced, uh, and somehow removed? Or maybe this was something else? Uh, no. In, in fact, uh, if, if I return to the ancient world, many, many different things could be attacked. We've seen in the case of Hatshepsut that it was actually a relief or an image on a wall that was uh, removed. We've, we've seen that sarcophagi and, and sometimes also graves can be vandalized. It could be statues. In the Roman Empire, it could also be coins because of course coins had the portrait of the Roman emperor on them. And if an emperor fell into disgrace for whatever reason, then, then sometimes people try to destroy or mutilate their coins. So here, here is a very nice example of the emperor Nero 
where, where someone has taken the trouble to, to cry out his eyes, uh, which is something that you often see happening also to, to portrait busts, by the way, that, that the eyes are attacked. Also, interestingly, the eyes of the goddess that is depicted on the other side have been removed. And this is probably connected to uh, a curse on Nero's memory. Uh, inscriptions as well. Here we have uh, an inscription of the imperial family where one of the uh, minor emperors, the emperor Geta, is removed. And you can see here once again that his name is very conspicuously left out. They didn't try to repair this in any way and, and, and try to gloss over the fact that his name had been removed. No, they leave a very conspicuous gap so that everyone is reminded that this, this emperor's name used to be here and now it's not. And perhaps you can see that even better here. This is a tondo, a uh, painted portrait of the imperial family. These are the Severan family at, uh, at about 200 CE. Uh, the younger son, Geta, uh, falls into disgrace. His memory is cursed by the Senate not long after he's become emperor. Uh, and he is then very uh, obviously removed from this tondo and, and where Geta's face used to be. Uh, we now have this gap that shows that there's Daddy, Septimius Severus, uh, Mama, Julia Domna, Caracalla, uh, the older brother uh, who reigned for several years, and then Geta has simply been removed. Uh, Geta is, a, in, in fact, a very interesting example because there's no other Roman emperor uh, for whom there's been such uh, an organized campaign of defacing statues, removing him from inscriptions, even scratching his name out of papyrus texts in Egypt. So uh, a real effort was made in this case, and it must have been, uh, it must have, the initiative must have come from the top. Have you thought about a difference between removing, toppling, and defacing? Is there a difference? I think there can be. I mean, we're of course drawing all sorts of uh, historical parallels here. We're going back and forth between communist times and the Roman Empire and Egypt and whatever. Um, I, I think we should also be careful that, that, that sometimes things look the same, but they may not have always the same reasons. Uh, for instance, in ancient Egypt, there is this notion that um, if you are removed from memory, so if your name and your images are removed everywhere, then you can no longer live on in the afterlife. So there's also definitely a religious context to that that is missing when we're looking at removals of uh, statues of Stalin or Lenin, for instance. Uh, people do not think that they are depriving Stalin of a place in the afterlife. So some things are the same, some things are also different. But I, I think in general, we can say that if you leave these very conspicuous gaps, like in the imperial family uh, or here, where this is still recognizably the emperor, the mission, but you can see that uh, his face has been mutilated. And as I mentioned, often the eyes are also mutilated. That can also serve as a sort of permanent reminder that someone is in this place. So when you just quietly remove a statue, you know, on a Sunday morning when no one's paying attention and you, and you put it in storage somewhere and you simply don't mention it anymore, uh, then you're trying to quietly remove this person from an honorable position in history. But if you leave a conspicuous gap or in its defaced form, I think then you're trying to send a different signal. Then you're trying to signal that this person is in disgrace. Once we thought he was honorable or we were forced perhaps to honor him, but now we know better and we can reveal him for what he really is, namely a monster, a villain, etc. 
Um, I think, yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, actually, um, I was going to ask you a question, namely from the perspective of political psychology, looking at the individuals who attack these statues, can you say anything about the sort of motivations that they would have for doing so? Well, certainly I will talk about this, uh, love to, if you just help me just to, to start with uh, the photographs I want to show. Stalin, uh, first of all, it's a well-known and will be less. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. About why people do these things, defacing, attacking, removing, and speaking about removing and motivations. That, that's just, there are pure political motivations exist about politics, power, uh, the ability to dominate, to impose your will, the ability to uh, introduce your will. There we go. It's a famous or infamous picture, a big one. See, it's a, on the background, uh, Vladimir Lenin is the head of the uh, so Russian Soviet Revolution. In 1917, uh, near him, second in command, second in charge, was Leo Trotsky. And he uh, became uh, a persona non grata, essentially, in the Soviet Union. Just he, uh, Lenin uh, and Trotsky, and, and Stalin and Trotsky, later they disagree on many terms. And in fact, Trotsky became the person who uh, portrayed as a villain uh, in Soviet textbooks. And here the picture on the bottom, see it's a picture, uh, identical picture, but the face of Trotsky been removed, removed. And for generations in the Soviet Union, uh, in newspapers and other sources when the picture was used, uh, there was an empty spot right there. So the Photoshop didn't exist then, but there was a was the initial type attempt at photoshopping the picture. So removing the image of an individual who was the right-hand man of Lenin, uh, and Stalin, essentially, but it was removed for political purposes. And next slide, please, if you can, can show. Now, I'll, I'll be quick right there. So this, again, Trotsky. Uh, it's a re remarkable picture. You see, I uh, highlighted it right there. Uh, to your left, you see Trotsky standing there near Lenin during Lenin's famous speech in Moscow. On the bottom, well, this Trotsky is not there. Picture was photoshopped. And the next slide, please. I, I just I must say it's not contemporary uh, developments. It's something has been done back in 1920s, 1930s. There we go. This is a, on the a, a top uh, uh, picture right there. It's a, a head of a security service uh, in the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin near him in Moscow in a, a, a sunny uh, day in the summer. And on the bottom, uh, the guy disappeared. Uh, he was tried by uh, the secret trial and executed. Uh, but pictures removed, so disappearance. So there's a political motivation. We debate uh, in political science, and Jennifer can uh, add to this, this it's true political communication, that the debate is uh, what's more efficient, most important thing. Is it just forgetting about transgressions of a person or continue naming and shaming? It's a psychological feature, just we do this in a family. Should we remind our children about some member of a family who conducted something shameful, or should we just forget about it? Uh, this individual and just never mention his or her name in our family. And so there's no clear question, of course, of this, but next slide, please, and then I'll, we'll, we'll summarize. This is maybe the less known uh, picture. This is a picture, a famous picture, and every person in China, I suppose, know this picture on, on the top. It's Mao Zedong in 1949 declares the creation of a first communist state uh, in China. So it's definitely, it's a very, very, uh, just a made up picture. It's just, it's, everything is, is, is colorful. Everything is, is great there. But notice there's a face of uh, Comrade Gao right there, just who was there. He was uh, uh, not the second, but maybe top five uh, or top three individual uh, in Mao Zedong encirclement among his, his top advisors, top followers in the government. Uh, after uh, just uh, falling uh, out of uh, favors from Mao, being accused and, and arrested, 
for uh, being an enemy of the state so that his painting, his picture was, his face was removed. And as you see uh, flowers uh, standing right, right there. So, and the three or four generations of people in China uh, saw that picture on the top. Gao was not even mentioned anywhere there. So this is a form of political death. Again, so you, you are not there, your name has been erased, you don't exist. So it's a, it's a form of character attack, character removal. Uh, I mentioned political, uh, political motivations. Yes, so you, you uh, get rid of your political opponents. You get rid of former uh, comrades uh, or associates. Uh, and it's uh, one of the ultimate forms of, of disgrace. Uh, there are reasons which are ideological. So it's a deep-seated values in us. Uh, and so uh, what kind of values? Could be religious values. There are religiously-based removals, you know, Taliban, just removal of, of uh, just destruction of statues uh, there. Well, uh, idea of injustice. In fact, uh, conflict theories in political science, Marxism is one of the examples, and post-colonialism studies and, and movements suggest that uh, the history of the world has been based on very unjust foundations, either as a class, problems with social class, uh, uh, or as a race, uh, or imperialism, and therefore, therefore, any symbol that represents old system, the liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, but it's an old system based on pressure, rooted in oppression, it must be somehow dealt with, so ideological. And also could be psychological. And, and in no way I suggest that this, well, this, uh, there are pe people who are mindless and brainless. No, people do have motivations, but psychologists have uh, established the fact that so many people, especially younger individuals, uh, prone to this form of, of self-expression when you want to do something meaningful uh, or meaningless, but memorable. And that's why we do have trolls. That's why we have uh, vandals on the web. That's why we have people, uh, and I remember my childhood, just we did, uh, hope, I hope this statute of limitation passed, but we did terrible things to our neighbors. I'm ashamed for them. Spray painting and, and damaging property because we just, we were just, uh, wanted to do something. And I believe that uh, a person may commit a violent act out of, out of ideological uh, reasons, plus political reasons, because you, you, you act against incumbent government. You just want to send a message to the government. And also could be out of, out of a well, psychological well, state of mind, just to then behavior. You want to do something. But instead of writing a pamphlet or publishing a paper or conducting a webinar, you do something meaningful outside, spraying paint your neighbor's uh, fence because, well, you don't like this, your neighbor, or simply, simply because you want to do something for that. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much. So, uh, but uh, you and I mentioned uh, mostly, mostly uh, statues and paintings uh, and uh, material items. But do you think there's a difference between attacking, uh, destroying uh, something material? and attacking an actual person, physical body and, and mind of an actual person? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I, I find that one of the most intriguing things about uh, this whole process of defacing and destroying and toppling the parallels that there are with actually attacking uh, the, the, the physical body, often the corpse of the leader. So a, a leader, uh, a tyrant maybe, who has been deposed, and then you see that people go to work on uh, his uh, or her body. And these parallels are often drawn. So there's this very uh, interesting quotation 
This is from uh, Pliny the Younger talking once again about the Emperor Domitian. So Domitian had been murdered in a palace coup uh, and then his statues are destroyed uh, and attacked by people. And Pliny describes this and he says, it was our delight to dash those proud faces to the ground, to smite them with the sword and savage them with the axe, as if blood and agony could follow from every blow. Our transports of joy, so long deferred, were unrestrained, all sort of form of vengeance in beholding those bodies mutilated, limbs hacked in pieces, and finally that baleful, fearsome visage cast into fire to be melted down so that from such menacing terror something for man's use and enjoyment should light out flames. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot in this quotation, I think, and you, you could spend a lot of time talking about it. But what I wanted to point out here is that it almost seems to be, you know, uh, describing a physical attack on the emperor himself. And we know that in some cases, such attacks did indeed happen. Um, for instance, uh, the emperor Elagabalus, after he has been murdered, they chop the head of his corpse and then they, they sling him on a hook and they drag him through the streets of Rome to show his disgrace. Uh, much as you would do with a statue, perhaps. You know? And finally, uh, he is chopped into pieces and cast into the river Tiber. Uh, we, we can take this all the way back to Homer, even in the Iliad, uh, who describes Achilles uh, with the corpse of Hector drawn behind his chariots circling the city of Troy every day to shame the corpse of Hector and to shame his memory. So what's being done to statues can also be done to corpses or to graves that are being desecrated. In the French Revolution, what, what do people do? They desecrate the graves of the French kings, for instance. And perhaps uh, the most gruesome example uh, is one, Eric, that you and I talked about before and that we both very much like. This is a medieval example of what's called the Cadaver Synod, where uh, a deceased pope, Pope Formosus in the ninth century CE, so, so uh, early Middle Ages, is put on trial by his successor. The popes were very much political figures in the Middle Ages. They, they uh, had their own territories, they had their own armies, uh, they got engaged in uh, political factions. Now this pope happened to be succeeded by a pope uh, from a different political faction. And what he did is he dug up the corpse of his predecessor uh, and then put him on trial. So as you can see here in the painting, there is the Pope dressed in, in all his regalia, in, in his splendid robes. He even got uh, a defender, someone to, to defend his case. But of course, it was a show trial. It was already known in advance that he would be condemned. Uh, so in the end, his corpse, after it has been condemned, is dragged out of the church and it's once again plunged into the river Tiber, just as some of the Roman emperors were. And then the story continues that he then washes up ashore somewhere and he's found by some fishermen uh, who bring him back and finally he is reburied. Um, but why did people go to the trouble? You know? uh, why, why put a corpse on trial? Why mutilate the corpse of, of a, a leader once he's dead? Uh, and I, I think the mechanisms at work there are actually very comparable uh, to what's going on when, when, when enraged people attack a statue, for instance. Uh, and these parallels are often explicitly drawn in descriptions. Right away, the uh, sort of opposite example, contemporary Russian politics, when uh, on the one hand, uh, they removed the statue of uh, Stalin from the mausoleum, 
the mummy and just uh, he's buried there. However, Lenin is still there. One can go there and just stay in line for a little bit and go and see just the, well, Lenin right there, just right there, display the body, display. And the reasons why the government uh, doesn't want, didn't want to remove this uh, was quite logical. They didn't want to spark uh, public uh, outrage. At least maybe 20% of people, according to opinion polls, 25, 30, who say, well, let's the body be there. Be there. In other words, yep. they say, let's pay respect. And maybe it's not really, as I said, a Christian tradition to keep a body there, not unburied. But assuming Lenin actually was not Christian himself, and then there were no in its historic artifact, and they just to, for the sake of public order, let's keep the body there. It's quite interesting. Quite interesting. Yeah. So, so Eric, of course, it's it's no coincidence that that we are doing this topic right now with everything going on with the protests in the United States, and in fact across the world, where where this has been picked up as well. So people really seem to make a big deal out of removing statues, keeping statues in their place. They go to fights over it, quite literally. Do you think, in the end, it makes much of a difference whether a statue is removed or whether it's kept in place? Martin, it makes a difference in some individuals and doesn't make any difference in other type of individuals. Those of us who are motivated by, by immediate concerns uh, name of, uh, of a high school or representation of your ancestral roots uh, in a certain way that you find derogatory or inappropriate. Uh, it's one thing and uh, one and done, uh, the painting or statue is removed and you're happy, well, just mission accomplished. But if I had deeper values, if I'm motivated ideologically, if I believe those statues represent the system against which I want to fight, that's, of course, it will be appeasement. That's just basically small step uh, uh, to satisfy my aspirations will be nothing because I have a bigger and I have a more, a more a complex, and complex and complicated agenda in this sense. And so therefore the question is how many of individuals are motivated by specific uh, ideas or concerns uh, or grievances? Uh, and how many people really motivated by, by deep-seated ideological uh, values? And this is what we don't, don't know. What's there for? Many, and opinion polls show this, suggest that, well, that's true. Let's just do agree with, with removal and just move on and because this is what people want. That, that's fine. Let's move on and discuss something else. Others suggest, no, it's something deeper within this. And just simple removal, it will not stop anything. President of France, uh, Macron, uh, just declared that uh, history is complicated uh, and history has many sides and therefore he said statues will stand right there, uh, suggesting that's yeah. a good or bad, just this is, this is uh, what he decided. I guess that brings us to the most complicated question of them all, uh, which is why we saved it for last. But, so there, there's a big debate about uh, all sorts of historical figures, but to what extent can we judge historical figures by the standards of the present? Is that fair? Is that realistic? Can we rewrite history and uh, does, it, does it mean that history changes all the time? Uh, as a political psychologist, I think uh, that, uh, yes, uh, many things happened, but the, the way they happened based on our personal opinion and of course historical perspective, historical perspective is something which we all learned uh, from our parents, uh, schools, from the web, 
from webinars and just we form our opinions. So yes, history can be, people say, well, we can, you can rewrite history. Uh, certain things happen, true, but the way we see them completely different, just the way we attach meanings to them. Therefore, there are different interpretations. And so the way we see uh, evil side of history and good side of history, I would say it's a very flexible, it's a very dynamic process. Yeah, I think history is being rewritten. History keeps changing. Um, on the other hand, I mean, um, if, if you're going to look at people from the past, then I would guess that everyone who lived, let's say, more than 50 years ago would not live up to current day standards, probably. Uh, and we were joking once among each other that perhaps in 100 years time, uh, everyone will have become a vegetarian and uh, we'll, we'll have to say, well, all those statues of carnivores that we've put up, like, I don't know, Nelson Mandela, uh, they have to go. This is a caricature, of course, but it is a very tricky discussion where you're going to draw the line. You know, what, what do you still think is acceptable? In some cases, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, if someone is involved in, in slave trade, for instance, then uh, I wouldn't advocate keeping that statue up. But what about a character like Winston Churchill, who has also come under discussion? You know? Yes, he probably held racist views, and he wasn't uh, the greatest feminist in the world, to put it mildly. Uh, but also, he, he achieved great things. So does, does one outweigh the other? That's a very tricky discussion to have. It is, but still, uh, it's a surprise, uh, surprising that I'm, I'm mentioning uh, Russian politics, this, because 99% uh, of my comments are critical. However, uh, they, in, in Russia, were able somehow to settle on the history, at least in the 20th century, in many ways. During the bloodiest event in, in uh, Russian history, it's a civil war between 1917 and 1921-22, definitely just mass casualties and, and destruction and suffering, and yet today they settled. And uh, remains of former generals who were condemned, damned, and, and just uh, forgotten during Soviet times, there remains reburied with honor. There are no monuments, of course. There are no just new statues erected for them. But at least, at least, it was has been history. It was painful. Was bloodiest part of Russian history. But let's settle this as a part of, of our history. So this is maybe just an example just that that can can be followed. Yes, we're not uh, certainly condoning uh, what happened there. However, just let's remember and remind everybody else what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this, this is certainly not a discussion that we can solve right here and now, right. I, I think. But I, I see that there are already some people in the chat. So do you think it's a good idea if we, uh, yes. if we get more people involved and let them make comments or ask questions if they want? One of the questions is uh, one that I think is really interesting about the nature of public space. So these statues appeared and existed in public space and certainly thinking about uh, statues that are removed uh, also requires us to think about what is public space and what is public space for. So what is the nature of, for instance, the Agora and what values should we put on display in that public space? And so can we see some shifts in how we approach statues based on how we think about public space? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, for instance, yeah, the, the Greek Agora or the Roman Forum, was also a place where people celebrate certain values. So the Emperor Augustus, for instance, uh, he built a new forum, a new big public space, a square with a temple, and there he put up statues of all the great Romans from the past. 
uh, and he put them opposite all members of his own family uh, who also got a row of statues. So that, of course, is also appropriating what, what's supposed to be public space, uh, which is celebrating these public heroes, but also makes a very personal statement about his own place in history. So one thing I think you can see happening in the Roman em Empire, for instance, is that emperors appropriate what used to be public space, uh, meaning the space of the, the Senate and people of Rome, and they make it into imperial spaces. Yeah, when I was in um, Washington, D.C., and I visited the capital, uh, and I did the tour, I, I was very struck by, by this custom that each American state got to donate two statues of, of local heroes that are then put on display. And that's also a way of you know, celebrating national values, um, state values, perhaps even. And you had astronauts, uh, but you also had Rosa Parks there. So, uh, yeah, that tells you a lot about the symbolism of that public space as well. What you put on display there defines the space in a way. And what is the public space, Martin? I think, and Jenny, I think it's also defined by uh, by politics. And I mean politics not in a bad way, just politicking, but politics is a will of the people. And so debate, uh, which uh, is developing about what's supposed to be public space. And uh, maybe just my personal opinion, and maybe it is uh, silly, but of course uh, we can express our opinions freely. But maybe just if we disagree with public space is, uh, maybe it will be a good idea to erect uh, a second statue, neither one which is under this world is disputed, to, to show that to maybe a different version of uh, events that took place right there. So, and you use both statues to indicate that's just a different point of view, at least two points of view uh, about that event. Of course, the idea is silly, but at least in a psychological way, it would represent that that's, there are points of view and there are uh, disagreements, have been disagreements about certain public issues. But I think public space uh, is defined by culture by ideology and definitely by political process. Yeah, that's interesting, Eric, because certainly having sort of dialogic statues would be a way of kind of reclaiming public space as a space for public interaction and debate. But yeah, uh, the, the statues in the basement of the US Capitol are certainly one of the key sort of touchstones of the debate over statues in the US right now. Alex is wondering uh, if there's a psychological difference between destroying or modifying a monument and creating a parody monument. And he gives the example of Putin gravestones. I'm not familiar with parody monuments, Eric, but if you are, um, is there a difference? Uh, mockery, mockery is, uh, uh, it's uh, for, for offensive to some, funny to others way of depicting reality. So it's a sarcasm, sarcasm, exaggeration, certain features, something like caricature. We, we are familiar with that, we provide examples, there are plenty of them uh, in the contemporary world. The difference is that uh, quite often this political mockery is often uh, conducted within legal uh, realm. Therefore, the authorities cannot prosecute or at least somehow limit the expression of this type of type of activities. And uh, those who support First Amendment in our country, Martin knows one of the points is the freedom of speech right there. Uh, supporters of, of, of First Amendment suggest, yes, this is our rights to portray individuals in that particular way. However, uh, there is, of course, limit the political and religious on how far you go and so how far you can you can mock uh, these images. But psychologically, psychologically, uh, mockery is affordable, is available. Children can do it. You can draw a picture. You can create a sculpture at home. You can share with others on social network. 
uh, and uh, this is stimulating, this is invigorating, this is interesting, and this is also, in certain ways, uh, allows you to express yourself politically. In many ways, it's supposed to be supported, unless it violates, clearly violates legal rules of our country. Martin, uh, are there I, examples of parody monuments in the ancient world? Mm, I, I can't immediately think of any because all, almost all the visual material is affirmative. It's celebrating someone. So usually when it's mocking someone, that means that it's defaced or destroyed. Uh, we, we do have one graffiti of the Emperor Nero from uh, the, the basement of the uh, Imperial Palace, I think. But it's very, very rare. Uh, I think caricatures and mocking images, I, I won't exclude that know that there were some in, in the ancient world, but they're really mostly associated with the modern world. And I, th I think they really came up in a big way what with the, the art of printing in the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. You get these caricatures, uh, mocking popes, for instance, uh, and, and then it becomes a big thing. Tonya's wondering, um, have you come across any instances, either you, Martin, or Eric, of individuals that were defaced or removed and then later on restored in some ways, perhaps represented with footnotes? Stalin, perhaps, is an example there, but are there other examples you can think of? Or Stalin's enemies, I guess I should say. Yeah, there is a very intriguing example from the Roman Empire of the Emperor Commodus, uh, who, who people may know from the movie Gladiator. Uh, he didn't have the best reputation. Uh, he, he was on very bad terms with the Roman Senate. So after he was uh, murdered, many emperors were murdered, the Senate uh, issued a decree condemning his memory and they, they proceeded to destroy his statues. But then uh, a certain general seized power. Uh, this was Septimius Severus, and he proclaimed that he was actually the divine brother of Commodus. So he tried to legitimize his new dynasty by making a fictional connection to the old dynasty. And he forced the Roman Senate to restore Commodus's memory. Um, because Commodus was, in fact, quite popular with the Roman soldiers. But the Senate hated him. They condemned his memory. Uh, and then, actually, the Senate was forced to issue uh, a new decree claiming that he was now uh, among the gods. He was divinized. So he, he was uh, condemned first. And, and just a few years later, he was turned into a god. And he was honored. Temples and everything. I can use an example, not necessarily about statues, but the meaning people attach, political meaning uh, attached to symbols, like a famous infamous example of a car train uh, used uh, in the conflict between France and Germany. So the car train in which capitulation was signed by one side, and then this was used as a symbol of uh, defeat for other country, and then back. So the French lost to, to Germans, to Prussians in uh, 19th century, and then 1914, and then again, again, beginning of World War II. So the same symbol, same car train for one, was used to, to humiliate the others. You just put it on the pedestal and say, look, this is a, just a, here you sign your capitulation agreement. It was used and reused by, by each other side, but fortunately it was put in and hopefully, hopefully it's, it's not there anymore. So the next question is sort of, a, in my mind, the million dollar question when it comes to thinking about toppling or defacing statues. Um, and this is sort of the question of what, what do you do, which is the hardest question. But uh, so Holly's wondering, is there a way to put a monument in context to demonstrate that social values have changed and that perhaps this person is no longer revered? Um, or will there always kind of be a knee-jerk emotional reaction to, you know, the way that social values change throughout history? 
Yeah, um, currently uh, in the Netherlands where I live have a big discussion as well about uh, you know our colonial past and about statues from colonial days which are still there, what should be done with them. Some people think they should be left in place you know, because they represent our former greatness. Uh, others think, uh, no, these, these were slave traders, uh, racists, their statues should just be removed completely. Uh, but there's, there's also all sorts of compromises that are being tried out, like, like putting up a plaque, for instance, explaining why this statue was put up and that nowadays we have to put this in perspective. Perhaps this person did some great things, but he also did some pretty terrible things by today's standards. And what I thought was a very charming solution was what, when I was in Budapest once, uh, they have um, removed all the uh, statues from the communist age. But rather than just uh, destroying them, they put them all in, in a big park, in a public park. Uh, and you can still visit it and then you can see these statues of you know, 10 meter high workmen's waving red flags and whatever. Uh, they're still preserved, so the past isn't gone. It's relocated in public space. It's no longer in the public square, so it's no longer celebrated in a central place. It's not forgotten. It's still there. It's just recontextualized. I believe so. It's idea of having a park. It's uh, probably somewhere in the middle uh, between both sides, and both sides may consider it as, as they're not caving. And I'm talking about both sides, and there are many sides of, of a debate, of discussion, of course. Uh, and returning to those of, uh, of us, people who are devout and who are believers, as far as I know, uh, the religion uh, in Christianity, in Islam, and other religions, there is a, a warning about, about paying too much attention to symbols. Symbols are important, but the most important thing is your heart and soul. Of course, it's easier said than done to say, let's educate and suggest that the piece of, well, granite, a uh, piece of wood is not... Uh, a value is just what you assign to this value is important. Uh, it takes long time, but uh, definitely must be a due process. In a contemporary global world, when we travel, I can say this just will probably sound, sound more and more strange and ridiculous. You visit Paris, for instance, and you see the well, portraits of Napoleon right there. So, as a Russian person, do you have to attack them and just ask for their removal because they offend you as a person? If I travel to Mongolia, should I remember the 300 years of Russians just living under occupation, as historians say, of uh, uh, tribes from the East? So therefore, yeah, a public spaces in which a debate can start, uh, due process for statues and paintings and other symbols today, and of course, education, 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 which takes a long time, but it should be done. Thank you, Eric. I'm not sure whether you were looking ahead in the chat, but uh, if you were, I'll just share one more comment and then we'll wrap up, which is uh, Vladimir noting, which I think is a really astute point, that most of our conversation revolved around the pagan Christian tradition, but there are traditions that forbid creating these images as a way, perhaps, of avoiding the question of idols that are going to topple or be taken or fallen down. Um, but thank you so much for your insights, Martin and Eric. I think you've identified um, some important ideas, which is that these types of decisions of how we understand and memorialize history have been with us for forever, and that they're fraught and they're political, and that people who uh, are motivated to get engaged in defacing, toppling, or even putting up new plaques or new context for statues are motivated by a variety of reasons that are all deeply influenced by changing social values. So thank you for an insightful and interesting conversation. Uh, we will be back with some uh, more conversations about character and character assassination. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.